All right, if you would, turn the Bible to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. This week was a heavy week, was it not? And I've just been burdened by it. I was praying Wednesday afternoon as soon as I started seeing the news and uh, I've been praying all week and I was super heavy hearted this morning and coming here and and just wondering, how do we address this? What do we say? Should we even, how much do we say? What should be our response? And uh, in, in a lot of ways, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily my job. Maybe there's a lot of Christians in the world that would, would disagree with that. It's not necessarily my job to have answers or be able to speak to all of those things. But my heart was heavy, and this morning you heard me in, in a couple different ways speak to how we should feel and that we should seek the Lord and that we should ask him to help us with that. One of the passages that is gonna be helpful for us doing this, just sorting through how we're thinking and feeling these days, is here in John chapter 18. I want you to look at John chapter 18, verse 36. Now, if you don't know, here we are in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're at the part where Jesus is now on trial. He is about to be killed. And the, uh, the, 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 the two different streams that are going on uh, simultaneously under the providence and sovereignty of God is that we know that Jesus is going to die. This is the reason why he came. He was born to die, and he tells us that all along. We know that. But at the same time, he was killed wrongly. It was unjust for him to be killed. He should not have, he should not have died. It was sinful people that killed him, and he was innocent. So he shouldn't have, but it was the will of God for that to happen, okay? So we pick up here in that scene, and he is before Pilate. Let's look at John chapter 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Now, Jesus is certainly the king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of America. He's the king of everywhere. He's the king of kings. He reigns over everything, okay? Jesus is. And so when he's asking this question, Jesus asked back a question getting to wonder what Pilate thinks. Does Pilate understand who Jesus is? Does Pilate know how big Jesus is, how powerful Jesus is? Does he know what's going on right now? And Pilate doesn't. Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? In other words, Pilate is saying, I'm not really that into this right now. I'm just trying to get you taken care of, get you out of my life and off my hands, and that's what it is. I'm not gonna get into who are you. I don't really even care that much. But he wants to know, is Jesus guilty? But in verse 36, we have some strong words from Jesus, and they're gonna be our most important words for tonight. Jesus answered, my kingdom. And let's stop right there for just a second. What did Pilate ask him? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus didn't necessarily answer yes to that, to try to, listen, limit his kingdom or shrink down his kingdom or narrow his kingdom. 
But when Jesus speaks up here, verse 36, he says, my kingdom, which means he has a kingdom, which means, yes, he is a king. King of what? King of who? King of it all. He is Pilate's king. And one day, Pilate will understand with a tongue that professes it and with knees that bow down to it. He is that king truly. You may be wrestling with, is Jesus a king? Is he the king of the Jews? Who is he really? And you need to understand that every single one of us, there's not a person in this room, there's not a child, there's not an adult, there's not an age group, every single person here will recognize Christ to be king and you will bow your knees before him one day and that day could be soon. He is the king and he has a kingdom. He says, my kingdom in verse 36 is not of this world. Hmm, that's a big statement. His kingdom is not the way you think of worldly kingdoms. His kingdom in large part is not limited to just here. It is not recognizable here in the way that you normally in a worldly way recognize kingdoms here. His kingdom is here Okay, we do pray thy will be your kingdom come, thy will be done. We do pray that on earth as it is in heaven. It is here, but it's not recognized, defined and shaped by the ways that we typically recognize earthly kingdoms. It is a kingdom. He is a king, but it's not of this world. It is of God. My kingdom is not of this world. Now look what he says next though. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Now, does Pilate understand all that? Do we even understand all that at this point is a good question. You can see Pilate's not into a bunch of talk. He's not into a conversation here. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king, all right? He's just trying to decide what do I do with this guy? How can I get him killed? You know, that sort of a thing. Do I kill him? Do I not? That's what's going on with Pilate. He is so big in his status and in his self-absorption, he's not really concerned with who Jesus really is. Certainly Jesus knows that and we get the answer that we have. But I want us to recognize that the king has a kingdom and he points out here that if it was of this world, his servants would be fighting. But since it's not of this world, his servants would not not be fighting. All right? Well, in light of that, turn back to the beginning of chapter 18. Let's look even better at this. Here's how it began. At that point, he's already arrested, he's in custody, and he's before Pilate. But let's back up a little bit. How did they get him? Jesus was a free man, he was out doing what Jesus did, hanging out with his disciples, leading them, teaching them, instructing them, and teaching them to pray, praying with them. If you were to read a biography of the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you would recognize the movements of Jesus. He did a lot of teaching. He did a lot of hanging out with people, and he did a lot of praying, and that's where we see right here at chapter 18. Let's read beginning of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And that's a, that's a key part of this story right here. See, Judas used to hang out with Jesus all the time. He was one of the disciples. Judas is the one who betrays Jesus right here in this passage. You're about to read it. So Judas knew where Jesus would be, and that's how he met him here. Verse three, 
So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, verse three lets you know that they are expecting a fight. They're expecting confrontation. They're expecting hostility, or else they wouldn't have taken so many people and so much stuff, weapons, if you will. There is soldiers here, a band of soldiers. There are officers here, okay? There are others, chief priests and Pharisees, and with them, so a big crowd of people, and with them, there are lanterns, torches, and weapons. Where are they going? Who told them to take all that? What were they thinking? What are they thinking might await them? What are they expecting to happen there? Were they expecting a war? A fight? That's neat to think about. Just when we get to verse three, did they think that Jesus was gonna pull out his band of soldiers and his torches and lanterns and weapons and they were gonna throw down right there and see who would win this? Did they think that this was about to be a gang fight? Who could do it better? Do you remember when Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world? Which means you think about the kingdom not in worldly ways. And do you see here how off Judas and his guys are in thinking what they might encounter? Jesus is going to willingly, without even the hint of pushback, surrender himself. It has to happen. He's predicted it. He keeps predicting it. Judas could have came with the smallest little five-year-old girl with no weapons and they would, have they would have successfully taken Jesus in. There is not going to be a confrontation here, but they are so wrongly thinking about Jesus, the king, and his kingdom that they come with all of that. Bit overkill, you might say, right? Well, I just brought it all because I didn't know what we we're gonna run into bit overkill. Verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? So picture nighttime, band of soldiers, crowd of people, torches, lanterns, weapons, moving in. You can hear it. It's loud. And Jesus and the disciples way over here praying and Jesus himself, the first person to step forward. He hears them, so he doesn't let his guys come run up to it. Jesus knows what's going on. He steps over and says, what's up, guys? Who y'all looking for? That's the scene. They think this could turn into an all-out fight, and Jesus says, who you looking for? Well, they answer and say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he, okay? Now let's stop there for just a second. In your Bible, it says, I am he, but I wanna teach you something. It actually just says, I am. And so that it's not awkward, the English has added in he so that it doesn't sound silly to us, but he actually said, I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament, 
and you're thinking about these Jews who are here and they have come over to find this guy who wrongly claims to be the king of the Jews. Now, he is truly the king of the Jews, but they think he wrongly represents himself as the Messiah and the king of the Jews. And he says, who y'all looking for? And they said, Jesus. And he says, I am. That would shake them to their core. That would cause them to step back. I am is the name of God. You don't say I am. You don't say the words I am. You don't claim to be the words I am. And he says, I am. It's a huge loss that in English we put the word he there to try to make it make sense when he literally said, I am. When Jesus said, I am, it says, Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, look at this, they drew back and fell to the ground. You've got to recognize here how huge this statement is, I am. This Jesus is not only a king with a kingdom not of this world. He is the king of everything. Nothing scares him. Nothing fears him. He reigns. He is so big and strong. Nothing intimidates him. An entire army, a band of soldiers, chief priests, officers, torches, lanterns, and weapons just walked into a garden at night, and one man that they don't even recognize, they need Judas to tip their hand with the betrayal of a kiss, they don't even recognize him, he says, I am, and they all fall backwards, or at least went low. He's that big. He's that confident. He's that poised. He's that sure of himself. He's that much God and king. So in verse seven, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Same thing. Verse eight, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Neat little caveat here in the story is that, that Jesus is concerned about them. It is the night when he would be betrayed. It's the night, it's the very moment where he's about to be arrested. He is going to be taken to be crucified. And he's concerned about them. It's fascinating about Jesus, right? The night before, he had just washed their feet. He had just had a meal with them. He had served them in this moment. And even here, he's concerned about them. You guys can take me, you can arrest me, you can beat me, you can flog me, you can do all what you're gonna do. You can crucify me, you can wrongly kill me, but leave them alone. You're looking for Jesus, I'm Jesus. Verse eight, Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Verse nine, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost, I have lost not one. Then, and this is where the story picks up more so in connection to what we read in verse 36. Then, I hope you know this part of the story, Simon Peter, who we know is the most bold and courageous and outspoken of the disciples, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, remember the setting that, we, that we're picturing, this, this, this band of soldiers and all these people here. It says that Jesus had stepped to the, the front to say, who are you looking for? And he says, leave them alone. So it doesn't exactly say, but it gives us a picture of this army of people here and Jesus here and his disciples behind him. Which, which leads us to believe something like Peter's in the background listening what's going on, comes running up, draws out his sword, reaches over and swipes at the guy and his name is Malchus, the book of John tells us. It doesn't tell us that anywhere else. His name is Malchus and Peter cuts off his ear. What was he going for, his face, his neck? 
Was he trying to cut his head off? Was he trying to kill him? Certainly, he was ready to fight. He was ready to fight for his leader. He was ready to fight for his boss, the one he admired, the one he looked up to, the one who had instructed him, the one who had just washed his feet the night before, the one who had just told him that he would do anything for him, and the one who Peter had declared his loyalty to. He was ready to defend him. He was ready to say, you ain't gonna do this to my Jesus. Listen, I know y'all think y'all are big and bad, and you got your whole army here, and you got all that, but this ain't going down. You will not get to him. Peter's ready to defend his Jesus the way we all are ready to defend people that we love. Verse 11, though. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus tells Peter to put your sword away. There's so many things to think about right now. One, he didn't need him to defend him. He didn't. He didn't need him to defend him. Jesus could have come down off the cross when he was on the cross, right? Jesus came back to life when he was in the grave dead. We know he did that. Jesus is in control of Jesus. Jesus is in control of everything. Jesus does not need us to come to his defense. And here we have Peter trying to. So Jesus, in what seems to be very calmly, turns around and says, Peter, put it away. This isn't how it's going to go down. And with that, he he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Drinking the cup means, in the Bible, taking the wrath. Drinking the cup means taking the punishment, receiving the just due judgment of God. That's what he's referring to. What Jesus is meaning here is that, don't I have to die? See, if they get into a fight, they are preventing them from getting Jesus, arresting Jesus, and taking him to die. That's what a fight would cause. It would prevent him from dying. So Jesus says, don't do that. Don't I have to take the wrath? And the answer to that is, yes, you do. Okay, so put away your sword. We're not gonna fight here. Well, from the rest of John there, it moves forward, and you hear more. You've got the denial of Peter, and then they go into the questioning and the examining of Jesus, and it leads us all the way up to Pilate. We get back to where we're at. And Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Now, it's hard to take this passage and apply it to the day that we're living in and say we don't necessarily fight. That may be too big of a jump, okay? And I'm not necessarily doing that. Because you could make the, you can, you can just, commonly say, well, the reason why they weren't fighting there is because he had to get to the cross. Now he's gone to the cross. He died already. But it's not a hard jump to get to his kingdom is not of this world. And what are we living for? Which means here in conclusion tonight, we need to ask ourselves, do we recognize his kingdom? Are we able to recognize the differences between the kingdom of Jesus as opposed to earthly, worldly kingdoms? The characteristics of the kingdom of Jesus are defined by Jesus himself. Humility, sacrifice, love, graciousness, kindness, forgiveness. 
mercy upon mercy, loving your enemies, not desiring that any would perish, but that all would come to faith and repentance. We know the characteristics of Jesus and his kingdom. And as we pursue the king and his kingdom, as we pray things like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. As we pray things like that, as we should, what is it that we're desiring? Are we desiring more of the king? Are we desiring more of the kingdom? Are we desiring more of those characteristics and trademarks that so define the king and the kingdom? If so, what does it look like then to fight for those? I'm okay using the language of fighting, even though he says we're not supposed to be fighting there. And I do think it's fair enough to say maybe he's not meaning post-crucifixion. But we know what the kingdom is. And what does it mean to live passionately, boldly, and courageously for the kingdom? There's a good book I read several years ago called Marks of the Messenger. And I actually gave it to Chase Hill, one of our college students, over Christmas break, and he's reading it right now. And I absolutely love this book. In chapter three of Marks of the Messenger, it tells this story. There was a book publisher that wanted to do a study of Christianity. And they chose a lost person who was not a Christian and got him to sign a contract and he enrolled in one of the well-known Christian universities in our country. Very big, well-known Christian university. And they wanted to do, write a story on how he would be treated. They told him to act like what they wanted people there to have him act like. Within the first semester, he had already been promoted. He wasn't a believer. Within the first semester, he had already been promoted to the leader of the campus ministry. You know why? Because he always had his Bible with him and he went to every meeting. The name of the book is Marks of the Messenger, because if you start to study the very characteristics of the king and his kingdom, carrying a Bible and showing up to church are not necessarily those marks, but rather humility, and sacrifice, love of neighbor, repentance, hatred of sin, mercy toward those who need mercy. When I read that in that book, Mark's the Messenger, chapter three, I was blown away. It names the university in that book and it broke my heart. And after, after that year, he came forward and told the entire campus ministry and the whole university, guys, I'm not a believer. And y'all thought I was one of the best believers on campus. And, and the, book go, the book is a Christian book telling us and it says, here goes to show, you don't know how to recognize a believer. You don't know what the marks are. You don't know what the characteristics are. Hey, the person that attends here the most with Bible in hand is not necessarily in the kingdom and of the king. We're looking for the characteristics of the one who laid down his life for those who hate him. We're looking for the one who would stand face to face with a band of soldiers fearless and say, none of y'all are fighting. I got this. Put away your sword. Do what you gotta do because he's so secure. Now, in light of what happened this last week, I just wanna ask some good questions of what are we so passionate about? 
What are our convictions? What are we trying to make happen? What do we desire? What's good for us? What's bad for us? How is God honored in the way that we're living? This was a heavy week. And we need to be reminded that there is a king. And his kingdom is not of this world. Before we get really quick into being defensive and having answers, let's make sure that we have sought the Lord whose kingdom is not of this world. Let's make sure our hearts are set and established and content with our kingdom that doesn't have its home here. Let's remember that we are not welcome here. We're not comfortable here. We're not satisfied here. This is not our home. We're ready for heaven. And our king will certainly get us there. And in the meantime, may we live for that kingdom. If Jesus is your king who died for your sins, you're in the kingdom by faith. But that kingdom is not of this world. And may we be able to recognize that. Father in heaven, thank you for an opportunity tonight to be together and to pray. And Father, I pray that you would give us loyalty and devotion to the king and his kingdom. I pray, God, that you would give us strength and discernment and grace and mercy as we look deep inside of ourselves and deep inside of our desires to understand where our heart is. Father, we ask that you would line our heart up with the kingdom. We ask, God, that you would set us on you. Father, we thank you for the reminder tonight of Peter putting away his sword. We thank you, God, for the reminder tonight that you are a king. God, I thank you that it is part of the good news that the king of the universe died for us. We are forgiven, we are secure, and we thank you, God. God, remind us and focus on us on living for the kingdom that's not of this world. And may you get the glory. God, give us strength and discernment as we move forward. Not just strength and discernment on what to think outwardly, but what's going on in our hearts. God, forgive us of our sins and pour your love on us. In Jesus' name we pray.